The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void. The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not for the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Daggeron prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands in Part 3 of the Inglorian Bastards Trilogy, Trials of the Valar. Welcome everybody to episode 114 of the Inglorian Bastards podcast. With me tonight, I have a very special guest. She is a lecturer in fantasy and children's literature at the University of Glasgow. She is the writer and or editor of many books, including uh, Tolkien Race and Cultural History, Celtic Myth in Contemporary Children's Fantasy, and most recently, the book that I have just recently purchased, A Secret Vice, Tolkien on Invented Languages. She's, she has won many awards, uh, including the Mythopaic Scholarship Award and the Tolkien Society's Award for Best Book. She is probably one of the most active and prolific Tolkien scholars. I could go on and on. With me tonight is Dr. Dimitra Femi. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is kind of a, an interesting interview for me, not just because you're amazing and I'm excited to have you here, but <laughs> but also because I'm, I'm going to be kind of piggybacking on the, uh, the the interview that you did for the Tolkien Experience podcast. Now, now my podcast is not, is not affiliated with their podcast at all, but it was an excellent interview that you, you did with them. It was sort of their um, inaugural, their first uh, episode that they had ever recorded. So I encourage people to go listen to that to get a background for, for what we're going to talk about. And, and from there, um, I guess I'll just start right in. So the question is this, um, you are a very prolific writer and lecturer, and somehow you've managed to, to find time to advise a lot of other great Tolkien scholars, such as Luke Sheldon and Andrew Higgins, who is your uh, co-editor on uh, A Secret Vice. So in advising some of these people and, and being as active as you are, do you find that, that Tolkien scholarship has changed over time? And, and if so, like where, where is the scholarship heading? Mm. Yes, it has changed. Gosh, it has. When when I was doing my PhD, people thought I was completely strange and weird. And why was I doing something like this? That you know, who would employ me? That was that was the <sighs> worry at the time because it was just unheard of. Tolkien was. Uh, I mean, he still is not. I don't suppose a canonical author in the traditional sort of sense, but he's getting there. You know, the the tide has turned in, in major ways. Uh, I mean, advising is one of the biggest pleasures of an academic's job, and and I am in a traditional um, UK sort of academic position where I have teaching and research, and part of my teaching time is teaching undergraduates, postgraduates, etc., like in a weekly basis. Uh, but uh, super, we call it supervising over here. I think advising is the the American term, but supervising PhDs is a big part of 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 my job, and it's 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 a privilege, and it's brilliant to see, you know, what projects come out of my uh, my PhD students' work. I've got another five on the go at the moment, uh, and, and more lined up for September. So the the, the demand is there, and it's it's just brilliant to see uh, new ideas sort of flowering and um, having that very having those creative conversations with people who have started looking at things that you haven't even ever thought about you know you, you think you've thought about everything and you haven't there's always more to do 
uh, in Tolkien studies. So I think we're definitely we're definitely looking at new scholarship towards, uh, for example, Tolkien's languages, and that's you know in many ways how a secret vice came up together as a project. So Andy is one of the first people who really looked at the languages in the series way and in a detailed way, and that was always a bee in my bonnet from from my first books. I had a had a I had a go at really the ideas about philosophy of language in, in Tolkien's uh, world, but somebody really needed to go, you know, to his early stuff and see how the language and the mythology sort of cross-pollinated each other. And that was uh, Andy's uh, project. And he was the right person to do this. He's mm -hmm. working on a book right now. So that's going to be exciting when that, that comes out. Um, Luke's project was very, very different. So again, that's that's part of the pleasure of these PhD supervising uh, activities is that you get to get involved with many different things. Luke's was a, a, a sort of a reception studies uh, and, and it included field work, it included interviewing um, uh, young readers of The Lord of the Rings and, and trying to understand the, re the, the way that younger readers uh, receive the text and does that really actually tally up with what us, the scholars, as a consensus uh, understand about the text. And in many ways, uh, Luke's project, I think, sort of challenges some of the cliches that uh, Tolkien, all the Tolkien scholarship has fallen into. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, uh, something very, very exciting. Um, I've got a student who's working with Tolkien's ideas of folklore, and mostly he's sort of non-Middle Earth poetry, which is doing some brilliant stuff. Um, I've got another student who's working on to Tolkien and the Irish material, the Irish tradition. Again, the Tolkien's Celtic sort of sources is something that I've, I've published on, but there's so much more to be done there. Um, I've got a student who's working on fantasy and theatre and theatricality, and there is a bit of Tolkien in that as well. So there, there are a number of different things that I don't think um, my generation would have necessarily been even thinking about. You know, it's, it's as the field is expanding and different approaches and different ideas come to uh, yeah, they, they come to, to inform the field as it grows, then uh, new new uh, perspectives come in. And actually, all of this illuminates Tolkien's work or often, you know, as well as with the secret vice, new material comes 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 um, to the fore. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great part of the job, the supervising. And, and it does keep me sort of up to date with the cutting edge of what's happening right now with a younger generation of scholars. And, and of course, there's always going to be new concerns, I suppose, and new anxieties and new ways of thinking. So I think we're talking a lot more today about uh, diversity in fantasy literature, about um, gender and ethnicity representation. And mm -hmm. we are going back to sort of... Uh, um, revisit Tolkien's work in that respect. And again, you know, my work, uh, my first book, like, which is now 10 years old, gosh, I don't know when that happened, but there you go. <laughs> uh, um, I had, I had a, you know, one of the first sort of um, analysis of race and racial anthropology in, in Tolkien's work. Um, but this still needs so much more work. So I've seen some interesting papers that look at Tolkien from a post-colonial perspective, for example, or um, look at more creative responses to uh, gender diversity, et cetera. Wow. Well, let's 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 stay right on on the, the books that you've written, and, and let's go to to your next book. Uh, I believe the next one that you published was Celtic Myth in Contemporary Children's Fantasy. Yeah. Is that, is that right? That was the second monograph. It, it, it all happened very. Yeah, so I had the first book was 2008, then A Secret Vice was 2016, and Celtic Myth was 2017. But they were oh. sort of written at this about, about the same time. I mean, it was a crazy couple of years where I was doing two books oh. at the same time. Oh, my. Which I have no idea how that sort of, you know, 
I mean, a lot of Celtic, uh, Celtic myth and contemporary children's fantasy was written late at night. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest here. Uh, and and, and that when I submitted it, I was so worried that it would come back with, this doesn't make any sense. This sounds like somebody who's staying up at 2 o'clock a.m. to sort of write. But I had a very young child at the time, and I was in a different, um, in a different job, which was much more teaching intensive, so there was no... You know, the time I had was far, far more limited. Uh, but that was a fun book to write. And it was in many ways going back to my master's um, studies, which was a, I have a master's in Celtic studies and uh, looking again at the reception of uh, Welsh and Irish medieval literature in contemporary fantasy, which is children's fantasy, especially children and, and young adult, uh, which has been a, something I've been fascinated with for a while. But I think what I wanted to try and, and, and explain and sort of argue was that um, there's a particular vision of the Celtic world that fantasy keeps on reproducing that isn't necessarily what scholarship would understand is the authentic Celtic past. Or, or mm. you know, can we even use the term Celtic? You know, that's a big debate at the moment in, um, in academia. Uh, but there is a sort of, yeah, there, is a st there are stereotypes there that fantasy reproduces. But at the same time, it preserves, preserves all of this, um, yeah, the creative sort of more magical elements uh, have fed into some amazing pieces of, of uh, children's fantasy, like Lloyd Alexander, um, Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, you know, some very, very big names. Well, you know, this has come up a lot in my interviews. Surprisingly, I, I had no idea when I went down this rabbit hole that Celtic myth would become would, would come up so much. And 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 Verlin Flieger has has written pieces on this, and we we got yeah. a chance to interview her. Uh, we talked uh, we talked a little bit about um, some of the the, the Celtic flooding uh, myths uh, yeah. that Tolkien would have been familiar with. Oh, for sure. So let's let's stay on the the children's fantasy path. I know that you've talked about. I, th I think I've seen it and listened to it in, in in other interviews and maybe even on social media where you're reading The Hobbit uh, with with your kids. Oh, with uh, my son. Yeah, I've got a young boy, and we read it. Um, finished reading it round. November last year so it was uh, from September to November ish so it took us a couple of months and he was then just yeah he's seven he turned seven in January so he was just leading up to seven years old and it was so much fun it was so much fun <sighs> and we just did it at bedtime reading as you do with all sorts of you know we had done already like Winnie the Pooh and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and you know mm -hmm. a lot a lot of a lot of uh, classics and then I thought right I think this is now the right time and for for a Tolkien scholar it's really difficult I've tried not to sort of overwhelm him with Tolkien all the way through because that's a, a big temptation and you can sort of you can have the, the opposite effect yeah uh, that way but reading it with him was was uh it was sort of a revelation in some ways because I sort of revisited with the eyes of a nearly seven-year-old well, what's funny to me, I'm I'm reading it with. Um, well, actually, I had just finished reading The Hobbit with my eight-year-old daughter, and what's funny to me is 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 into Tolkien as I am, and, and in fact, been I've been podcasting now for a year and a half um, about the subject. I, it it hadn't occurred to me. I I, I guess maybe I I didn't think, or maybe I'm just good at sort of separating my life. <laughs> you know, like I do this over here and this over here. But it wasn't until I read uh, there's a science fiction book called Red Rising, which I'm sure you've heard of, and the and the author in in the acknowledgement talks about how how formative it was for him when his father read the hobbit to, yeah. to him and i thought wow that's that's genius <laughs> and and so so i did and it was really she's so into it she wants a birthday a hobbit themed birthday party of and, course <laughs> and and so the reason i bring this up i guess 
what is it about The Hobbit that makes it such a fun book to read to kids? What, what do you think? Well, it was first told aloud to kids. You know, it was that that is its origin. Its origin is very much oral. Um, and at the same time, although I know Tolkien himself came to regret the sort of authorial voice and the asides and all of this, it actually, it trusts the young reader. It, there is, there, you know, there's no... Um, you know, there's no portal, you know, you open the book and you're straight away into another place, into another world. And that nobody had quite done that in the same way until Tolkien did it for, for, for young readers. And that trust of, you know, I'm going to take you in that other world and you, we will navigate it. And with Bilbo, you sort of, you're going to find out more about Middle Earth and you'll find out about a number of things, some of them pretty complex, some of them very, very scholarly, but in a way that makes sense in a way, in a story that is quite exciting. But at the same time, there's no sort of, um, there's no sort of dumbing down or, or sort of less demanding in terms of descriptions, for example. There's, there's pages and pages of description mm -hmm. and, and that trust that the young reader is going to follow with that and, and, um, and, and feel that they are not being patronized, but they're being spoken to as, you know, uh, uh, readers that are worth, that are worth addressing. Mm -hmm. It's quite important. I also think there's that there's, there's it's just hilarious at points. There's so much humor in The Hobbit that again, I don't think it comes across as much if you don't read it aloud. You know, when you read it aloud, a lot of wordplay, repetition, um, uh, all of you know, the Borough Hobbit scene, you know, when, when uh, uh, Bilbo is with the trolls. I mean, we had hysterics of laughter with that one. I was like, it, it really didn't make me laugh on the page. You know, it's very, very different when you read these things aloud, or you know, the dialogue between um. Uh, Thorin and the Elven King in Mirkwood, which is like, so what were you doing here? We were starving. Uh, <laughs> we were sort of, and you were trying to sort of spy on my, on my people. No, we were just starving. <laughs> he keeps on saying we were starving. And if, if you read it aloud, you suddenly, you read it as if it's been written in capitals, you know, and you suddenly realize the humor of the scene where Thorin's just saying, we just needed food. You know, we have nothing against you. We just needed to eat something. And it's just very, very funny. And it and it's really um, it's a it's a it's a joy to read out loud. I think it was maybe it was Michael Drought who who said it's just it's really clear who's talking um, in in The Hobbit. Um, where, whereas you know there's some books that you you know <laughs> it's a little harder to read them out loud. Yes, um, yes. But the, the oral I mean oral orality was was its 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 inception. You know this is a story that was told orally for a long time before committed to paper, was committed to paper in bits, you know, it was not, it, it, this isn't something that was composed uh, at, from the beginning on paper, and that, I think, shows quite clearly. Yeah, well, um, as a parent um, uh, to a child who's probably about the same age as, as my kids, can I can I tell you a dad joke? I'll see if you yeah, can appreciate absolutely. this. Yeah, go for it. So today my wife was watching a, um, you know, uh, one of those shows about building houses, and and they were talking about um, sort of refinishing this this fireplace, and they were talking about brick and mortar, and my son says, uh, "Mommy, what's what's mortar?" And uh, and I'm in the kitchen without a beat. I said, "It's where Sauron lives." And and my <laughs> and my daughter my daughter just goes, "Daddy," it's her way of rolling eyes at me. Oh goodness, that's great. That's actually uh, I I had some some sort of. Uh, unforeseen uh, reactions to The Hobbit as well, I suppose, because it was just that we'd finished it. And um, uh, my son was sort of, you know, still talking about it and doing drawings. You know, he did quite a bit of fan art around around Hobbit. And mm. then he was talking to his daddy and my husband, and he was saying, 
you know what, Daddy? At the end, Thorin dies. And he was quite, you know, he was quite quite sad about it. And, and Mina, as, as a sort of protective mum, sort of jumped in straight away and said, yeah, but at least, you know, but at least he, he you know, he got to say goodbye to, to Bilbo and it wasn't that bad. And he's like, well, the main thing is he did the right thing in the end. And he said, uh-huh. sorry. He said, sorry. So like, we see, there you go. Some of the, the main message is there, right? That's the redemption right. of Thorin. That's, good. that's right. That's part of the story. They all became better in the end, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very good. We, I'm, we could probably talk about this for a really long time in our kids. Um, but I just recently picked up A Secret Vice, Tolkien on Invented Languages, um, which you edited with Andrew Higgins. One of the things that I thought the listener would find sort of most interesting was how this book came to be and, and how, you organ, how you organized the book. Is that something mm. you, could, you could talk to us about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the... The the talk, uh, uh, you know, a hobby for the home was the initial title. Then later on, Tolkien referred to it as a secret vice. It's sitting in a box in the Bodleian. It's been sitting in the box in the Bodleian for a long, long time. And we know that that's, you know, that's the version that Christopher Tolkien used in the uh, Monsters and the Critics and other essays. And um, I had looked into that box when I was doing my PhD. And that's going back a long time ago now, far, far too long. Mm-hmm. Um and I knew that it wasn't just the talk in there. There were there was a mini essay just before the main essay, which was all about a weird phenomenon called phonetic symbolism, uh, which is a very heretic idea. It's you know it's very anti-Saucerian, sort of anti-mainstream linguistics at the time. It sort of um, argues that there is an intrinsic connection between the sound of something and its meaning, which is completely the opposite of what modern linguistics say, which is uh, meaning and sound are arbitrary. The relationship between meaning and sound are arbitrary. You know, we call mm. a table a table because we've decided that's what we're going to call it. There's nothing tabley about a table, if you see what <laughs> I mean. But sound symbolism sort of says that there might be something tabley about a table. And, and I'm oversimplifying here, clearly. Well, but well that you, is... actually, you actually sound quite a, a lot like Bilbo. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so so that was always interesting to me because I I always thought that Tolkien was hinting at this phenomenon in in uh, in a number of his linguistic work actually and in in, in Middle Earth in certain points. So back then I had asked the Tolkien estate to reproduce that mini essay in my book in Tolkien Race and Cultural History. I do I do reference it back then. Uh, but they said, look, this is just a whole essay that's never been published before, and this isn't the right place for it. I was like, and I said, that's fine. That's okay. You know, that, that's, it's their decision, and you respect it. Uh, and then Andy started his PhD with me and, of course, went back to look at A Secret Vice because it's such a key text in terms of Tolkien's invented languages. And, you know, while turning the pages, he sort of suddenly, uh, we were together in the Bodleian. We were there because I was just looking at another box at that particular point. And he turns around and says, Demetra, there's a couple of pages here. What is this? You know, there's pages here of, of the essay that are not in Christopher's edition. Oh. There were a couple of loose pages of very, very, very bad handwriting, I have to be completely honest here. <laughs> and in pencil as well, which is a nightmare with, with an old sort of frail paper and all that. And it was clearly a bit that, you know, there was there was a little arrow where Tolkien was, was meant to insert that into the main essay. So he had a place in the main, main essay, but was never included. And part of me is thinking it's because it was just it was nearly unreadable. You know, it took a, a long time to, to transcribe. So Andy uh, re- referenced that and used that in his thesis because it introduced a whole new invented language from Weijin, which wasn't known or heard of uh, until that point. Wow. So so you know, Andy was t- towards the end of finishing his PhD. We've been talking about this. I was like, look, 
there is a lot, a lot in that box that people haven't seen. There is all of that SEM phonetic symbolism, which I think is absolutely crucial and needs to get out there. There is all of this extra stuff in a secret vice. And then there were all the notes after, after the, the, the talk. And there again, there were some, some sort of random things, but clearly also some notes related to the talk about um, some very, very interesting figures of around the time that Tolkien gave the talk, which you would never, ever think that Tolkien would have anything to do with. And we're talking about modernists like James Joyce and Gertrude Stein. And I mm -hmm. remember sort of Andy and I rubbing our eyes. Is this really Stein's name there? Are we just imagining this? You know, how, yeah. how can that be? So that's when we sort of uh, sat down and thought, right, this is just, we really need to go to the estate and make a case that this talk sits around a number of other things that are all related. They're clearly all related. They're all about contemporary and they're worth you know, other people's wild to see. They're important for Tolkien scholarship. They're important for the context, the cultural context in which he was creating his languages. Maybe, you know, they're not as weird as people think. You know, there is a whole historical cultural context. So, yeah, that, that led them to a proposal to the estate. The estate first um, approved that. And then we went to HarperCollins with a, with a uh, further proposal. And things just, uh, yeah, things rolled what? from there. Wow, that's a big deal. Uh, I mean, I suppose I had already a sort of a relationship with the estate in the sense that I had already got permission to use bits and pieces in, in my book. So my, my first book already had some stuff, like snippets of unpublished stuff from Tolkien, but not whole big, you know, not whole work, piece of work. Uh, but I suppose there was a trust there already that I wouldn't go and do anything silly with the material and that I would respect the material and that I would present it in the way that it is and not sort of try to appropriate it in any way. So, the, you know, it wasn't completely a, a, a beginning of a relationship from scratch, but yes, it was a huge step that to sort of take on a whole edition with, you know, one of my students whom, you know, they didn't know Andy yet at that point. So it, yeah, it, it was a huge thing actually. Uh, and, and I still can't believe that it happened, to be honest with you. There are points where I still wake up and I think this is, this was just a dream, right? It can't happen. Oh. It's a dream. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, it probably took years to sort of build that trust. And, and if we could, if I could ask you, obviously, you've had a, a huge impact on a lot of people, both just fans and other people studying with you and, and sort of reading your work and listening to you. But I, I'm curious about about you. Has there been um, one particular teacher or scholar that, that was really formative for you? Hmm. Yeah, that that's, that's a difficult one. I think there were two two major people while I was, I suppose, training to do what I am doing now, and that's during my master's and PhD uh, days. And one was my my own PhD supervisor. I was very very lucky to have a, a, an amazing supervisor, it's Professor John Hines, who is still still a professor at uh, Cardiff University, uh, who um, is at the moment a professor of archaeology, but for a long time he also worked as a philologist. He actually was taught the same curriculum that. Um, uh, Tolkien had uh, had devised and he was you know I think he just missed Tolkien in Oxford by like a couple of years or something so we're talking wow. about that sort of generation um, and he you know he's he, uh, he'd known Tom Shipley for a long long time before all the you know there are how many Anglo-Saxonists are there you know or were there <laughs> at that time there's many many more today I suppose but John was brilliant uh, and first of all took, took, took a chance you know with a PhD that was just you know strange as I said and, and weird and um and he he understands he had he understood Tolkien's own professional life, I suppose, and that was a huge uh, 
a huge part of you know his guidance to me was getting me to understand the sort of uh, scholarly um, um, environment that he worked in and the sort of stuff that he knew. Um, the other person is uh, Dr. Juliet Wood, who um, was my tutor in my master's in Celtic studies, and I've, I've uh, later on I taught with her. We, we you know, we're sort of um, working on a on a piece of work at the moment together. But she was a president of the Folklore Society for many years. She's been very influential as a folklorist and as a, as a, as a writer on um, Celtic stuff, but also all sorts of other traditions. And I suppose I got my background in folklore and anthropology from Juliet, and I, I can't think of a better, a better mentor and a better uh, scholar to look up to, really. I was, I was very lucky with my tutors. That's great. Um, well, while we're on sort of most influential, we're going to kind of shift to some favorites. Now, I've I've watched a lot of interviews that you've done uh, from from the BBC to the Discovery Channel. Um, I, I think I even saw one with uh, John Rhys Davies. Is that right? Yeah, 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 that was a few years ago. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, can you can you tell me? Um, do you have one of those like favorite interview moments? So I did, I've done quite a lot of work for uh, while I was while I was in Wales before my my new job in Glasgow. Quite a lot of work for BBC Radio Wales, and that was brilliant. That was uh, I did quite quite regularly newspaper reviews for them as well. But also I was I was in as a guest uh, speaker whenever there was anything about Tolkien or fantasy, or whatever. And uh, there was never one steady person. It was always a rotation of speakers. But the the, the people at BBC Radio Wales taught me a lot about how to do. I suppose public engagement and how to how to get ideas across really really uh, clearly and succinctly and quickly and live. <laughs> there was no sort of recording most of those times. I suppose in terms of interviews that were memorable, that that one with uh, John Rhys Davies was quite amazing in the sense that he it was it was a video one and I, I to be I'll be completely honest with you I prefer the radio uh, <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a lot of faffing around when there's cameras involved there's a lot of sort of makeup and things that I don't like very much and and sort of waiting around waiting around my goodness they're waiting around the afternoon <laughs> for a five minute clip it, it's just yeah it just defeats me you know I, I just after a while I lose the will to live but um while we were waiting, John Rhys Davies, he was very, I was quite, quite impressed with how knowledgeable he was about, for example, English literature. Uh, we talked a lot about Yeats. We talked a lot about Kipling. We talked a lot about sort of science fiction. And then when we ended up being in front of the camera and doing the actual interview, he ended up directing me. So, you know, I, I don't know how he did it, but um, we ended up not looking at each other because we had to look at a camera at the camera in a particular way but when you watched it it was as if we were looking at each other and i've no idea how directors do these things but they do and it was quite a quite an experience that uh, i still can't explain to you how it happened <laughs> uh, so you you have you have a lot of of these on your website i believe so if, if people want to go see um is this interview on your website I don't know if it is anymore. It used to be on uh, BBC I Wonder. Uh, I'm not sure whether that is still there. But there's quite a few of my radio stuff and the History Channel one, one for Turkish TV. There's quite a few things on the on the uh, website. Great. 
Okay. Well, I'm, I want to ask you, this is a kind of a personal, not, not a personal question for you, more of a personal question for me. So it, I'm, I'm getting ready to take a Tolkien pilgrimage of sorts to England, um, uh-huh. which, which, which I'm going to podcast. Um, and, um, and, and these will be sort of, you know, recorded and, uh, there'll be video and, um, I'm getting tours from, you know, uh, professional tour guides and, um, getting to meet with some people from the Tolkien society. It's going to be great. Excellent. Um, but I, but I have a question, you know, I, in interviewing, uh, I just interviewed Ted Naismith and, and he, um, he had some, some sort of nuggets of wisdom from his time in England, um, things that I, that I wouldn't have guessed. Like, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to hit the big spots, right. You know, I'm going to go to Oxford and I'm going to go course, up to Bur- yeah. Birmingham, Birmingham and, 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 you know, hit up Stafford. Um, but he, he mentioned, uh, one in one place in particular called the Bell Inn, which might have been the inspiration for the prancing pony, he says. So I, I'm, I'm curious as, um, you, as someone who lives um, is sort of in near the area um, <laughs> and, and someone who's sort of traveled around England and, and I'm sure seen the sites, um, are there any hidden gems that you can give to me of places I should go? There is one place you definitely need to go to. I, do, I wouldn't say it's a hidden one, but it's one, it's one that people forget about. And I, I don't know why. It's, it's one of the very few places that actually Tolkien himself identified as a direct influence in a, for a particular scene in The Lord of the Rings. And I don't know why I don't hear more Tolkien, Tolkien sort of um, visitors, you know, going there. And that's Cheddar Gorge and Caves. Oh, yeah. uh, and then this is, you know, the glittering caves of Aglaron, the, uh, the caves behind um, Helm's Deep. And it's it, we know he went there a, a few times. He went there on honeymoon first with Edith. He went later on. And uh, I, I recently went uh, because I'm, I'm I've I'm just working on a on a poster presentation for a scientific actually uh, conference with Dr. Kristin Larson uh, on geology and as talk, as an inspiration for Tolkien. We're looking at uh, Cheddar Caves specifically, and it was just you know you, you walked in and you could literally sort of every few every few sort of chambers of because it is a multi chamber. Uh, cave it goes in for for a while and you walk around and you come back and it's 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 you know it's not just a, a, a small place but in every chamber you go you find another little bit and you're like oh that comes up in Gimli's speech oh that, ah. that, that it is it is uh, point for point you know really 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 um following the route of of uh, gauss cage which is the main the main the biggest cage in the in the complex uh, so I did I did a blog post about it and I posted some of my photos and a, and a video of the Aladdin's cave which is the most beautiful part of the of the cave and as I said there is this uh, poster presentation for a, a geology conference that's coming up between me and Christine but people need to go and see it it's it's a real place he walked there and he used the, the this particular location very very specifically well, you'll, you'll be very happy to know that that is on my list of things oh, to do good. while I'm there. Oh, I'm, very happy. I'm planning planning to spend a whole day there. Well, let, let, um, so one of the last questions I have uh, to, to ask you is, is about um, kind of related to our podcast. Now, in, in our podcast, we're, we're in part three of kind of a storyline that has taken us to the Lonely Isle. And and now to Amman, um, and and 
you know, they're kind of going all over the place, me- meeting these people um, that we've read about in in the Book of Lost Tales or in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some ways, sort of moving forward in time through my podcast, I'm actually kind of moving back in time in Tolkien's writings in some ways. And they're, they're about to meet some some characters uh, named Arian and Tillian. Yep. Um, and and so I'm, I'm curious, I wanted to ask you about, in the podcast, I referred to it as the Lay of Narsilian, but I think that that's like, uh, it's redundant. I think it, um, just saying Narsilian sort of implies the lay. Is, is that right? It does. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, Narsilian is one of those very tantalizing references because it clearly refers to what Tolkien had envisioned as a a, a big piece of work, a lay or, or, or a long narrative poem um, that told the story of how the sun and the moon were created by the Valar. Uh, but it doesn't seem like he ever wrote it. Uh, or if he does, I mean, Christopher Tolkien says in uh, The Shape of the Middle Earth, if he ever did, I've never seen it. So it might be that, you know, there is some hidden sort of piece of paper with it somewhere. But I don't think so. I, th- I think this is one of those classic cases of a, um, a, a, a sort of a referenced epic that adds depth to the world, but isn't necessarily there. Or maybe there were plans to write it and he never did. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it actually shows once more how Tolkien is using... Uh, folkloric and mythological um, tropes and um, structures in in his own writing, because uh, when you read uh, primary world mythologies and you know, real world mythologies, there's always references to uh, long pieces of work that we very often have lost, and there is always this sort of sense of a palimpsest of layers of texts that talk back to each other. Uh, some of them moral, some of them written, and I think that's what's happening here. We have a text that was, you know, that could have been written if Tolkien had decided to, or may have been written, we just don't know, but which encapsulates in in the oral tradition inside his world, one of the most important parts of sort of, you know, the the cosmogony, really, the creation uh, of of, of the world as the elves and men later on come to know it. Um, I I think the the whole myth of the creation of the sun and the moon in Tolkien is quite interesting because it's, different to most other primary world mythologies in the sense that the sun and the moon are not the, you know, if, if you think about how many, how many sort of mythologies have the sun as a major deity, for example, or how many um, uh, scholars are thinking about mythological traditions as sun worshipping, etc. In Tolkien's mythology, the sun and the moon are the second best thing. They're not the main sort of uh, way of illuminating the earth. That was the, tr- these were the trees and the trees were destroyed. And mm-hmm. we left now with this leftover, you know, the, the sun and the moon are what's left of something that was much more splendid, much more magical, much more enchanting. So this sense of loss is already embedded in this creation of the sun and the moon. And I think if that lay existed, or if it does exist, uh, it would be a sort of uh, elegiac, um, slightly melancholy uh, piece of work. Sure. And this must have been mentioned in the Book of Lost Tales. Is that is that right? The song isn't mentioned. No, the the uh, actually the Book of Lost Tales, the the, uh, the tale of the creation of the sun and the moon is very very long. There's there's it goes on and on and on. Christopher Tolkien actually says that he only gives us parts of it. it. It's just far too long to include all of it, and that he summarized you know at certain points. Uh, and and he seems to have really got into the nitty gritty of how the gods and the day you know he calls them gods at that point the Valor, how gods and the Maya think how they mourn, how they cry, how they make things with their hands. It's a very um, tactile story, uh, the early one, which we don't see much of that at all in the Silmarillion. It, it all 
happens in, in a few pages and it's much more sort of elevated biblical sort of um, um, yeah rough around the edges sort of description we don't get all of this uh, down-to-earth hands-on creation that we get in the book of lost tales I think something sort of got lost a bit there uh, but of, of course it fits with the effect of the Silmarillion as it came to be later on and and these are the things that I, I think make these stories so rich and make people just want more, right? The yeah. you know the sort of offhanded comments about Queen Baruthiel or or yeah. like uh, what about the Entwives? Like exactly, <laughs> t- exactly. tell us more, all, please. All the bits that we we don't have. I mean, but that's again, this is somebody who was a medievalist, right? This is and I say that to my students very often. Being a medievalist is absolutely brilliant, but it's also frustrating. It's yeah. so frustrating because there's all of these references to all of these stories that all these texts that we just not have I mean it's the same with being a classicist or you know uh, studying any of the ancient cultures there's always references to stories and texts that we just don't have anymore uh, and and for Tolkien that was a source of inspiration it was like okay that story doesn't exist we've got some hints uh, how can I fill the gap yeah, and and how how can I you know in, in some ways that's that's the Hobbit sort of plot uh, coming out of the Voluspa uh, the, the sort of you know okay mm. There's all of these references to dwarfs and then an elf with a staff and a thief. You know, what is that story all about? And there we go. And and probably, you know, as frustrating as it is, you have those moments like you did at the Bodleian where you find these yeah. pieces of paper and it's like being <laughs> exactly. a, an, an archaeologist, right? Like, <laughs> look yeah, and what there, I, I mean, it still happens, I suppose. You know, you, there's, there's still um, manuscripts, you know, might still get, get discovered. And some of these stories sometimes surface again. You know, you, you never know. That's that's part of the uh, the allurement, I suppose, of the, of the field as well. Yeah. Yeah, well... I've kept you for about 40 minutes, so I'd like to just end the interview uh, just asking you about anything that you have coming up here. I know you mentioned um, there's a course that you're offering this summer that I wanted to just, uh, if you wanted to plug. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on uh, setting everything up at the moment. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's a new summer course at the University of Glasgow, which is going to give a bit of a glimpse of what we do because um, we have a whole master's in fantasy in, in Glasgow. We've got about 30 students working on uh, PhDs in fantasy. Uh, there is There are events, there are sort of public engagement things, there is you know funding for projects, all of these things. Uh, but this is going to be a bit of a flavour uh, and it's an accredited summer course, so people can come and do it for credit and use it for their university degree wherever in the world they are. It's going to be called Fantastic Texts and Where to Find Them. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, I know, I was thinking I had to find a, a title that I, I liked to sort of repeat to myself. And um, it's, uh, I think I think Glasgow is, is a lovely place to do this sort of thing. Uh, and the, one of the... Um, one of the uh, mascots, of, well, it's not really a mascot, one of the symbols of the university is the unicorn, which is also a Scottish a Scottish symbol as well. So it's, it's, it feels sort of like the right place. So we will do, clearly, we will do some Scottish fantasy as well. Uh, Peter Pan is one of the main texts we'll look at, and we'll go to the um, to Dumfries, to the place where uh, Jane Barry went to school and grew up, and the garden he played that he later on acknowledged as an inspiration for uh, Neverland. We'll definitely do some Harry Potter, because Hogwarts is around the corner from where we are, I think. And we will go up to Glendin and Viaduct and see, you know, where they shot the um, the uh, Hogwarts Express going past the Viaduct. Uh, but of course there will be Tolkien, of course there will be Tolkien, and of course there will be Le Guin, there will be some, you know, major key key fantasy uh, authors included, but also some of the theories and, and uh, critical approaches to fantasy. Well, I'm a little jealous of anyone who gets to take this course. That sounds fantastic. Uh, anything else that you want to mention that you have coming up that you're excited about? 
Oh, there's, there's a number of uh, articles in the pipeline at the moment. There's something on Tolkien and Kipling I've been working on for far too long that I need to get out. I was talking to Luke Shelton about that as well. And this is just my reminder to myself to get that thing done and out of the way. Um, and I suppose after that, there's, there's, there's far too many possibilities. I have to... Um, I have to wait and see, you know, what flowers first. That's the, the problem at the moment is that I've got too many ideas and I'm just uh, I'm just going to see what will pan out uh, naturally in the next couple of years. Well, as a fan community, we look forward to any of those. <laughs> so th- thank you, Dr. Femi, for coming with us. Thank you very much for having me. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.